right, this time we're going to go ahead and dismiss the kids with a special program. And as they do, we're going to get into the Word. And i um, looking forward to that. Take our Bibles this morning. Go to Luke 14. Luke 14, as you, as you turn there. Um, grateful to be back. And um, I think through the years, I'm not sure how many different times we've been here. But it's been a number of times. And uh, so just to see the familiar faces. But I think the last time we were here, it's been quite a while. And um, so some new faces, which is always exciting, too, to see what God's doing in hearts and lives and in churches. And, um, and we're grateful, again, to, to minister in different churches around the United States. We look forward to this evening. I'm going to do for you, for the next couple of days, a series um, that's going to build upon one another. The message is will. And um, this is a series it, through the word of, of Luke chapter 14. As you begin to consider this passage of Scripture, this is one to consider one of the, one of the difficult sayings of Jesus. The hard passages. This is a this is a difficult one. You, you just even if you really think when you have it read to you or you read it, you you step back going, whoa, what does he mean by this? And remember, as Jesus continued further in his ministry, as he got closer and closer to the cross, he was making it very, very clear on what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I really believe that there are so many people who make the claims that they're a Christian, but who really are not followers of Jesus. And, and the truth is, I would say, not even real Christians. There's a lot of people, I mean, remember, we live in a Christian nation. <laughs> That's kind of funny. I mean, the truth is, everyone calls themselves Christians. You can be a cult and call yourself a Christian. I mean, the reality is, what does that mean? And Jesus did say, many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do good works? And what does he say? Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I don't know you. There's no relationship. There are people who live in their sin, who claim the name of Christ. Jesus even made it very clear. He says, you say, call me Lord, Lord, and why don't you do the things that I say? That makes no sense to me because that's what a lost person would. They would have all of the words from their mouth, they would say, but their life does not match up the gospel at all. When you consider that, even Jesus said, among the wheat, there are terrors. That means this, there are lost people sitting in this room right now as I speak. That would be normal. And yet people in this room who would think that they are saved and they're really not, that's normal too among Christianity. So the reality is you begin to look at this and we say, okay, so what is this passage saying? So I'm going to read this to you. It's verse 25 to 35. We'll go on a journey together with this one. In verse 25, it says this. It says, now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And then he continues on verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost where they have enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to, out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate, deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is still a, a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Then he goes on to say in verse 34, salt is good, 
But if the salt lost its taste, how shall it be? How it shall its saltness be restored? It is of of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As I think about this passage of scripture, I think about the true cost of real discipleship. And that's actually the series. If you want to entitle this, and I want to give it to you really easy as we kind of work through these, these, these verses and what in the world does this mean? And honestly, I think every church in America should hear this series. I really do. This series is so powerful. It's the, it's the hard sayings of Jesus, but yet it's, it's so clear as he would have spoken this to so many massive amounts of people. So this is a message that Jesus wanted people to hear, and yet a hard message to hear. What does he mean by all of this? As I consider this, my heart races to some different situations. One, I remember a number of years ago being on a mission trip in Italy, and we were right near Rome, and I gave a message, and it was just a clear gospel message. And at at the end of this, a lady came to me with, with tears in her eyes and said, I have never heard that before. It was actually a message on Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And she's just said, I've never, I've, I've grown up religious. I mean, I've gone to church all my life and I've been told you must believe in Jesus, but you also must, you know, be baptized and keep the sacraments and, and all these things. And, um, she says, but it's evident by the Bible that you're saved by grace alone. And I said, you understood the message. And it's just clear there that the very next day we had a meal with her. As I sat down with her, I asked her the question. I said, ma'am, now that you understand the gospel, what's holding you back? from trusting in Christ alone. And you know what she said to me? She looked at me and said, I'm too afraid of what my religious family might do to me if I convert to true biblical Christianity. You could say she cared more about what her friend or her family thought than what God thought. Actually, the same kind of thing has happened. We've had, we've had the different community outreaches we've done. I remember a teen event where, sure enough, as I give a gospel message and invitation, I just kind of say, hey, if anyone wants to go talk to someone tonight about what you've just heard, and, and sure enough, a guy stands up to go walk out to go talk to somebody, and a friend grabs his shoulder, pulls him back down, and says, what are you doing? And then he looks at me, and <clears throat> he looks at his friend, he looks at me, he looks at his friend multiple times, till finally he looks back at his friend, he puts his head down, and he never responds. You could say he cared more, again, about his, what his friends thought than what God thought. Actually, as you begin to look at this passage of Scripture, we're going to see this unfolded to us. And my desire would be to unfold it. Now, if you're taking notes, you can take a lot of notes, okay? But I'm going to tell you at the very end, I'm going to give you the note, okay? Because in the very end, of this message is going to be flipped upside down on it, okay? So if you're looking for three points in a poem, you're, 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 you're going to be disappointed. So let me just kind of right away tell you as I do this, I'm going to unfold this passage. And in the very end, I'm going to go, boom, here's the, here's the, here's the point, okay? And so this is my desire today. What does it mean to be a true disciple of Jesus? Let's pray and ask God's help. Father, as we come before you now, I come before you realizing I can do no good apart from you and your word. God, I am dependent upon you. You must work in hearts and lives. I realize that the nature of sitting here in comfortable seats and um, in comfortable Christianity where we live in America where things are easy God, I pray that you would stir our hearts to the word. I pray for every believer in this room that you would stir them to a greater love for you, to a supreme love. I pray that you would stir every lost person in this room to an understanding of their lost condition and then give them a desire within them, Lord, that would would um, work in their hearts that they would then repent. They would turn to you humbly 
and, and God, that you would save them. So God, empower me, use this time, Lord, as precious time. And as we consider this series for the next couple of days, use this this evening and Monday and Tuesday as we work through this passage of Scripture. God, do a work in our hearts, stir us to greater obedience and a greater love for you. Thank you, God. Empower me now, I pray. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So what does it mean to be a true follower of Jesus? Actually, as we look at this passage of Scripture closely, we see this is a hard saying. It truly is from Jesus. I mean, if you really consider this, if you begin just using your brain a little bit, you realize this is a serious message from Jesus Christ. What is he saying here? Actually, it says in verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him. Now, if it just said crowds, that would be a lot of people. But it doesn't say just crowds have accompanied Jesus. It actually tells us these are great crowds. This is a massive following that Jesus has. It's not a simple little church kind of a gathering. This is, this is literally thousands and thousands of people who are following Jesus at this time hearing this message. Now, you can only imagine if someone came into your area, again, without normal kind of entertainment that we have, and they came preaching unlike any preacher ever has preached. This is the greatest preacher who ever lived. This is Jesus himself. He preaches with authority because he is the authority. So just his preaching alone would have been something to hear. But not just that, he always, he did miracles. He, he, he did this to show exactly who he was, that he was truly God in human flesh. So here he is doing so many miracles that even the book of John says this, that he did so many miracles that the, that the books of the world could not contain all the things that he did. This means it's just so I mean, so powerful, so many miracles he did. Um, he would come into regions, he would wipe out diseases, sickness in regions at a time. People would come to him, they would, they, and, he would, he would, and actually the truth is sometimes he would heal people that, that, um, that had no faith in him. I mean, many times he healed unbelievers, that, that's what he did. He could heal people, that's why I laugh at modern day faith healers who, who raise money to build a hospital. And I'm thinking, hello, come on, if you're any good, go to the hospitals and relieve people. But we live in a, an area of charlatans and a, and a world of charlatans. But this is no charlatan. This is, the, this is creator God in human flesh. So here he is. Great crowds are following him. And again, why not? I mean, wouldn't you want to hear this guy speak? So then he turns to the crowds and he speaks this message that, again, shocks us. It should shock you. If you are alive today, this should shock you. Okay. Really, I'm serious. You ready for it? Look at this closely. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, to help us understand this a little bit more, I want to go into a couple words here that we need to have as an understanding. The first one would simply be this. The word disciple, what does that mean? Well, in one simple way, it could simply just mean this. It means a follower, maybe slash learner. You kind of follow Jesus. Um, but the truth is, is Pharisees had their disciples as well. And so in a, in a lost world, and even in Scripture at times, it can be used in a context with lost people following somebody else. That's normal. But what's interesting is when Jesus is saying this, what does he mean by this? Is he saying, if you really want to hang out with me... Here's the stipulations, but if you can't do this and you can't hang out with me and follow me around, that's not at all what he's saying. Actually, he's, 
He's making it very clear. When you think of the word disciple for just a moment, the truth is, I want you to take your Bible and go to John chapter 5 for a minute. In John chapter 5, we see this whole idea of what it means to come to Christ and to be a disciple of Jesus. In John chapter 5, we read in verse 36, I I want to take you to there. Jesus has just made the claim that he's the bread of life. And then verse 36, he says, but I said to you that you have seen that that you have seen me and and yet do not believe. Do you know who he's talking to? This a religious crowd. Hey, that kind of sounds like you and me. He's speaking to the religious crowd, but these who he's speaking to is actually religious hypocrites, Pharisees. As you look at this closely, notice this, as he says this in verse 37, it says, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven, not to do mine own will. Actually, I'm reading the wrong chapter. Sorry, you guys look at that. I'm like, wait a second. That's a great passage of scripture, but that's not at all what I'm talking about. Okay. Look at this closely in verse 36 of chapter five. I was in chapter six. But the testimony that I have great that I have is greater than that of John. It's greater than John the Baptist. What's his testimony to for the works that I that 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 the father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the father has sent me. So if you want to understand who the Messiah is, look at what he does. It's very, very clear. No one can do these kind of works except Jesus. And then he says this, and the father has sent me himself, born witness about me, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in, in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. He's scathing them. Listen, if you really, if you really were of God, if you really were God's children, you would believe God's Messiah. But he's saying to these religious hypocrites, you are rejecting the Messiah. So he goes further, verse 39, you, you search the scriptures. Now, that's interesting because we've often memorized this kind of passage or verse, and it's out of context. But notice what it says. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What does it mean to come to Jesus? It really means to become a true Christian. Now go back and look at Luke chapter chapter, 5, chapter 14 for just a moment as you look at this. Because are you noticing in verse 26, if anyone comes to me, what is Jesus doing? Okay, let me ask you a question. Here's, the reason I'm putting this out on, on purpose is because years ago I would read this passage and I just never really studied it out personally. So when I read it, I would think, oh, this is about, this is about becoming a better follower of Jesus and, um, you know, and, and uh, going deeper with God in a sense. But wait, 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 wait. Actually, he's calling people to come to him. And yet in another passage when he says this, he says, but you don't come to me to have life. So if he's calling people to come to him, who is he talking to? He really is speaking to unbelievers to say, listen, you need to come to Christ. Because if a person comes to Christ and one doesn't come to Christ, one is getting saved while the other one is rejecting the gospel. Are you catching this? I'm saying this because it's massive amounts of people. Let me ask you a question. If you were a preacher 
And there were massive amounts of people listening to your message and the overwhelming majority were lost people. What kind of message would you preach to them? Would you really preach how to have a best life now or to become a better you? Would you really preach the message where, where you would tell people how to read your Bible better or how to pray better? If they're lost people, none of that matters. They need what? They need the gospel. And here's Jesus calling people to come to him to be true disciples of Jesus. Actually, the word disciple, if you consider Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the word Christian is not found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Actually, it's not even invented till after Jesus's resurrection from the dead. And in Acts chapter 11, what you would read is actually in verse 26, it says the disciples were then called Christians first in Antioch. So what does it mean to be a Christian? It's a little Christ. It means to be a true Christ follower. Actually, in this context, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? It means to be a true follower or to be a Christian. Jesus is calling lost people to himself. Could you imagine a person saying this? Hey, uh, Jeremy, I'm a Christian, but I don't follow Jesus. I would simply tell them the truth. I would say, well, then you're probably not a Christian. Because true Christians follow Jesus. Actually, Jesus said in John chapter 10 that my sheep, they hear my voice. That means they're listening for the voice of Jesus. It's amazing that in a, in a shepherd mentality back in the day, the shepherd would begin to speak and there would be all of these sheep and some were his and some were not. They were to be in a, within a fold, you could say. And as he would speak, his sheep would hear his voice. But those who were not his sheep, they didn't listen to that. They, they didn't have any kind of, they would keep grazing. They were on their own in a sense, but his sheep know would hear his voice. He says, they would hear my voice and they follow me. He says, I know them and they follow me. True sheep follow the shepherd. Phony sheep don't hear his voice. They don't follow the shepherd and actually they don't have eternal life. Okay. So really Jesus is calling massive amounts of people to a saving knowledge of Christ. Have you really come to Christ? Now, as I say this, I want to kind of bring us even further. As we look at this, I think the shocker comes as you look at this closely. He's saying in verse then 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, in his own life, He cannot be my follower. He cannot be a true Christian. What? Are you catching? Excuse me, Jesus. Um, What do you mean by that? I mean, this just seems so anti-Bible. I mean, everything about this is like, what? I mean, he's calling us to go hate everybody. Some of you are like, I got that one down, Jeremy. You know, I'm pretty good at hating people or something. Wait a second here. What does he mean by this? I mean, can I just tell you this? Sometimes as a preacher... You have bad days. 
Isn't that true, Pastor? There's sometimes, I mean, there are times where you preach and you like, you walk away and go, I am not sure what just happened there. You know what I mean? I mean, you've studied, you put the time into it, you know, and maybe other, everyone else is going, I'm not sure what happened there either. You know what I mean? There are times you could have bad days as preachers, you know, maybe Jesus, he just, he just didn't have enough sleep the night before. I mean, maybe that's what it is. And, and he just is having a bad day communicating. And so when he says this, ah, Jesus, <laughs> what? Wait a second. That, Oh, he must. Oh man, uh, Jesus! I mean, this is not how to how to draw crowds, is it? I mean, that that kind of message. What are you saying, Jesus? Should be natural for the crowd to go. What? And can I just tell you this though? And we all know this: the Messiah never misspoke. Jesus never had a bad day preaching. Jesus said exactly what he wanted to say and what he was communicating. The truth is not everyone had ears to hear and could understand it. And yet he would make it clear in what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. So what does he mean by this? As you begin to think about it, is he really saying, go hate everybody? Because when you read it at an initial first glance, you go, that's exactly what he's saying. If you're going to come be my follower, you got to hate your father and your mother. You got to hate your kids. You got to, you got to hate your spouse and you got to even hate your own life. And I'm so sorry if you're unable to do that, then you cannot be my follower. So see you later guys. Wait a second. What? Okay. Take your Bible. I'm going to take you on a journey with me. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to have you look at the Bible. Are you ready for this? Okay. Let's look at this. Okay. Whether you turn or whether you touch, but find it. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Go, go to the Ephesians chapter 6 for just a moment as we turn there. In Ephesians chapter 6, it's a, it's a familiar passage because um, we probably heard this growing up. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1. Now remember, if you're going to come to me, but you don't hate your father and your mother. So let's look at this for just a second because as you look at this passage of scripture, we read in in verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Which means this. Disobedience is wrong. I mean, if you're supposed to obey, that's right to obey. And then it tells you in verse Two, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, wait a second. Even think about that for a minute. It's like if you obey and honor, there is actually you'll have a better life. I mean, how many teenagers want a better life? I mean, the truth is everyone will be like, yeah, I want my life to be better. You know, uh, it's like if I were to say, how many want to have a loser life? You know, no one's really going to No, You want a better life and you want a longer life, don't you? I mean, it's like a better quality, a better quantity. You know, like that's that's what his promise is here. This first this command with a promise. Now, that's interesting to think about obedience. What's that? Uh, growing up, my dad was a uh, taekwondo instructor. And so I kind of grew up doing martial arts and competing around the country in martial arts. It's interesting because my, my father as a, as a 26 year old came to Christ and it changed everything. It really changed our family. Um, my dad began to follow Christ and actually it began to influence the way he would teach even in Taekwondo as he taught. I remember learning things like obedience. You know what that is? He said, here's what it is. Obedience is doing exactly what you're told. It's doing it instantly and doing it with the right attitude. Actually, that's true. To, 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 do, to not do exactly what you're told is disobedience. Actually, you could say it this way. Incomplete obedience is, well, disobedience, isn't it? 
And actually, you could say this. It's like delayed obedience. I mean, if you don't do it right away, the truth is when you delay, it's like the, then that's that's disobedience. I mean, you see this in the Old Testament, and the New Testament. I think about then the whole idea of with the right attitude. Think about what does that mean? It means that here is an idea of honoring your your family. Now, consider this for a second. I, I think of um, a number of summers ago, I was I was preaching at, at Northland Camp. I was I was I had just finished preaching at the junior side uh, that that week, and I was waking my way in the evening across this field to where my trailer was parked, and so I was making my way across there. I was, it was dark. I had my iPad and. And um, and I was walking and I, I, I see this little spot where there's the there's like the trailer and there's this row of trees. And yet there was like kind of like a cutout kind of where it's a pathway. I could make my way up to the trailer. So I'm making my way through there. And as I go through this pathway, I I, I feel like I, I run into resistance. I, I ran into um, it felt like fishing line. Honestly, I was like, whoa, I was like, I kind of felt it and it kind of broke, you know, but it wasn't fishing line. It was spider web. Don't you hate when you walk in the spider? Uh, you know, that's a, don't always be the first one to walk down the path. You know what I mean? Or use a stick or something like this. Uh, but anyway, I'm like, oh, and I'm like wiping off these ropes. I'm like, that was pretty strong web. And then it dawned on me. A kid once told me, which I don't even think is true, but here's what he said. The stronger the web, the more poisonous the spider. Ah, I'm like, this is a serious poisonous spider. You know what I mean? It's a pretty broad web. And I mean, everything, I'm like, oh, sick. And as I'm doing this, I just, you know, all these things go through your head. Now, I'll tell you, I don't freak out with spiders, okay? I really don't. But I also don't want them in my bed at night. You know what I mean? Like, just, oh, cute little spider. No, I, so, so here I am, I'm walking, and I look down at that point, and I see on my iPad the spider. And then not only the body, then I see the legs and everything, too. And right away, my just my gut was, like, kind of, you know, it shocked me. And I took the iPad, I actually was in my hand, like, Ah, and I threw it. And right as when I threw the iPad, I went, ah, like, oh, no, like, what did I just do? Um, and, and then I go over to the iPad. I'm like, oh, I cannot believe this. And I, and I look at the iPad. It's laying on its face. It's like on the screen down. And, and I'm like, ah, oh, I wonder if it's even still working. But then I look at it. It's not flat. It's like at an angle. And I realize, uh-oh. And I kind of look underneath. And I realize the spider is still there. It's, and I'm like, oh, what am I going to do now? So I took my hands on the back of the iPad. And I just carefully went, <laughs> and smushed it and then i'm like oh and i pulled it turned it around and i looked to see it and it just guts all over this i'm like oh this is sick and then i can't even tell if the screen's broken you know and then i'm kind of wiping off the guts and everything i get some stuff to wipe it off and i realize the screen's not broken i'm like okay that's good and then i hit the on button and sure enough it powered on and i went thank you lord thank you you know now i say this to you to say what does it mean to honor well obviously when i freaked out and just threw it that didn't show honor but the way i reacted after i threw it like ah like what did i just do showed that that was expensive and i cared for it it's like when you honor something you treat it carefully now for some of you who have ipads and a lot of money, you get sick of one, you chuck it out the window maybe, and you keep on driving, buy another one or something. That's not me though. For me, I'm like, whoa, that's a big deal. You don't just chuck an iPad and, and you're careful. It's like a new vehicle or something too. You say, oh, be careful around that. No throwing rocks near here, kids. You know what I mean? I mean, you're, you're just careful with expensive things. You, you, don't, you don't open up your, your, your computer of some sort and have little babies crawling around by it and on it. Okay, that just, you just, ah, you, you're careful. If you love your parents, you obey and you honor them. If you love yourself, you disobey and dishonor them. Now you say, well, Jeremy, is it ever right to disobey your parents? 
Yes. If your mom, for some reason, says, you know, you come home and she says, I'm so mad right now. And you're like, really? What about what? Well, the neighbor's cat. It keeps climbing on my car. And you're like, well, mom, kind of calm down. Well, no, I, here's what I want you to do. And she, she says, she pulls the, open up the, the drawer, the, you know, the utensils or whatever too. And there's a huge butcher knife. She, she pulls out and says, and hands it to you. And you're like, what do you want me to do with this? Go over and kill the neighbors because I'm so mad at them. Okay. Don't obey your parents at that point or disobey your mom. Okay. You might want to say, mom, maybe you should go take a nap or something. And you might even like 911, help, my mom is crazy. You know what I mean? Whatever. I'm just saying you don't, you don't disobey. I mean, you don't obey that one. Okay. But the, or if, if your parents say this, don't you ever repent? Don't you ever turn to Christ as your Lord and Savior? Well, guess what? You can disobey that because God, who's your creator and sustainer of life, calls you to repentance and faith. You always obey the higher authority. But other than that, basically, you obey. It doesn't say obey your parents if they're good parents. It doesn't say obey your parents if they're Christians. It tells you to obey and honor them. And actually, you do this out of great respect for them and because you love God and you love them because God has placed you in their home. You, that, this should be something normal. That's why it's so shocking. If you're going to come to me and you hate not your father and your mother, I mean, what, what is that all about? I mean, the truth is we're supposed to be loving our family, aren't we? And then not only that, I mean, think of it this. Go to chapter 5. You can see it right here across the page probably. And look at verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives. Now, notice it's plural to plural. So it's not you, husband, love all of your wives. Okay, and it's not like that. Okay, it's you as a husband, love your wife. Okay, so if you're married, then you should love your wife. How? You should love her the same way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a self-sacrificing love. Actually, that, that means you're willing to die for your spouse. And actually, because you love her, you speak kindly to her. You treat her carefully. Some of you, you say you love your spouse, but the way you treat them doesn't show love. And I think you know that's wrong. Yet God commands you to love them. Now, actually, nowhere in this passage here does it tell you for the, for the wife to actually love your husband. So, ladies, you're fine. You're, you're okay with that. No, 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 actually. Because if you take your Bible, go to Titus for just a second, okay? I just want you to see this. In the book of Titus... Um, find Timothy's, and then you find Titus after that. And then after you, when you find Titus, it's Titus chapter 2. Look at verse 3. Older women. Now, I didn't say that. This, that's what the Bible says. Okay, so I'm just telling you. I'm not going to point out anybody or say anything. Here it is. Though. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not, slanderous, not slanderers or, or slaves to much wine, that they may teach what is good, so and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. The older women of the church should model this and should teach this. They should be ones to say, let me just let me tell you, you need to love your husband. You need to love your kids. 
They're supposed to model. Why? Because this is Christianity. This is those who have been rescued by God. That's one of the characteristics that God is love and we are like God because God has made us like this into his image. He's created us into his image. The truth is, is, is that we as, as, you, as, as women should love your kids. You should love your husband. That's what well, I'm looking at. This, this is fam- family love. It, I mean, it should be true. But how do you treat your family? So scriptures tell us that we're supposed to love our parents. We're supposed to love our spouses. We're supposed to, to love even one another. Go to John 13 for a minute. You've got to see this. In John chapter 13, as we look at this passage, look at John 13 verse 34. It says in verse 34, it says, A new commandment I give to you. Now who's speaking here? This is Jesus. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you that you also are to love one another. Now you say, well, that's not a new commandment to love people, is it? Well, it's a new commandment to love like Jesus. This is why it's new for us. Jesus says, love people like me, like I love people. And not only that, just as I've loved you. Then look at verse 35. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, my true followers, if you have love for one another. What do true Christians do? They love one another. They seek to love one another. Go to chapter 15 and look at verse 12. Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Look at verse Verse 17, these things I command you that you love, that you will love one another. I think that Jesus is trying to teach us something. We don't just love our family. We should love the body of believers. And you know what's amazing? Aren't you glad everyone is not the same? I mean, if everyone were like you, it'd be pretty boring. Sorry. I mean, and if everyone were a preacher, that would be kind of boring, too. You know, that'd be kind of, then, you know, we'd all be like, get out of the pulpit. I'm, it's my turn. You know what I mean? Or whatever. It, it, it's, it's interesting, but God has made us all different. We're all different. Uniquely designed by God. I mean, the, our pigment is different. Our, our, our fingerprints are different. Our hair is different, you know, or no hair. I mean, the truth is we're all we're different, you know what I'm saying? Like, so, so God has created us individually, and yet he, he, he brings the true believers together in the assembly, and yet because of our differences, how does it all connect and work? It's because of great love for God that draws us together as a unit, unified body for the, for the right purpose. But when we get our focus off of him and we start focusing on ourselves, then what happens to the unity of the body? It's like it falls apart. So you begin to look at this and you see the way we're supposed to love one another. Actually, did you know this? The Bible even tells us we're supposed to love our enemies. Remember that? It's Matthew 5 where he talks about how you're supposed to love your enemies. You're supposed to bless those that persecute you and, and do good to them that despitefully use you and abuse you. But the truth is, is, wait a second, it's easy to love people who love you. But, but how do you treat the people that hate your guts? That's where this is so different. It's so unlike humanity. This is a God-like kind of love. God is telling us to love even our enemies. I've even had people tell me this, and maybe in marriage counseling, you don't understand, Jeremy. I'm like, I live with the enemy. (laughs) Well, the Bible says, Jesus said, love your enemies. Bless them. Pray for them. 
do good to them? How do you treat people that hate your guts? And I say this, and I wonder, even like if family reunions got together, would you go? Uh, you, don't, you, you, you catch what I'm saying? Some of you would be shocked if someone came and walked in the room, maybe. And then they sat on your row, and you went, <gasps> like, uh, what are they doing here? And why are they on my row? You might even be like, ah, oh, I think I've got to go use the restroom or something. And you got you find a way to get out. And I'm saying this, and we're supposed to love people, actually love our enemies, love one another, love our spouses, love our parents. Actually, Scripture even condemns hatred. That's why this is so shocking. Watch this real fast. Go to 1 John. 1 John is right before Revelation. So if you find the last book of the Bible, back up a little bit. You'll find 1 John. And look at chapter 2 for a second. I mean, again, amazing. 1 John 2. What does the Bible say about hatred? 1 John chapter 2 and then verse 9. It says this. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Actually, you go a little bit further down and you see in verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Not only are you in darkness, but you can't see straight at all spiritually. You're blinded. Do you hate anybody? Watch this. It gets worse. Go to chapter 3 and look at verse 15. It says, everyone who hates his brother is a what? Is a what? Are you, are you, are you alive? There we go, yeah. They're a murderer. That is a shocker. What? They're a murderer? Now look, it doesn't stop there. It goes even further. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It's saying this, if you have hatred in your heart, you're a lost person, and you don't know the Lord. You don't have eternal life abiding in you. Now you go, well, wait a second, Jeremy. Can a Christian hate? And I would say, yes, sort of. And here's what I mean by that. If you're really in Christ and you have hatred in your heart, you'd be so convicted by the Lord and realize this is no part for, for a true Christian. God, deliver me from this hatred. Because this is not like Jesus. This is like Satan. This, I need help, God. I don't want to be this way. That's what true Christians who have the temptation for anger go, oh, I don't want to live that way. You can't live that way. Actually, if you live that way, you show yourself to be a, a non-believer, actually. And then you go to chapter 4, and you read this in chapter 4, verse 20. It, it, it's like amazing. As, as it says in, in verse 20, it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he, has, who, who, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I mean, that's why, th- that's why this message should naturally be such a shocker. Wait a second here. You're saying, if I'm going to come to you and be a true follower of you, that I've got to hate everybody. I've got to hate my spouse. I've got to hate my kids. I've got to hate my parents. You know, I've got to hate everybody. And then I've got to hate my own life. I mean, what does that mean? Do you look at yourself in the mirror every morning? And, and when you see yourself, you say, I'm talking to you. I hate you. I'm, now, qu- yeah, quit looking at me like that. And you're talking to yourself in the mirror. I hate you. I hate you. Is that really... 
what he's calling us to do, I think all of us naturally are going, something doesn't seem quite right. It doesn't, it seems like that's what he's saying on the surface, but what does that, what does he mean by that? We should all be naturally saying this, but what's, here's what's so amazing. Take your Bible and we'll have the answer. Go to the book of Matthew. And as we turn to Matthew, it's actually Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, we have Jesus explaining what he meant, actually, when you could say this, Scripture always interprets Scripture. That's the best way to understand Scripture. Let it interpret itself. In Matthew chapter 10, and we read in verse 27, Jesus, the Bible teaches us this, what I tell you, um, actually, I'm in the wrong spot. Matthew 10, verse 37. Okay, I'm looking at 27. It's verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What what is he saying here? If you love father or mother more than me, then you're not worthy. Jesus, actually in the other passage in Luke 14, he's using what is called a Hebraism. This is actually cultural in their own setting where he's using something as a comparison. He's taking a, a, like a, like a strong stand, it looks like. And what does he mean by that? But he's using this as a comparison to show us what he really means. Really what he's saying is if you love your spouse or your kids more than me, you're not worthy of me. What is he saying? He's saying forsake. All idols of human relationships for the one true God. Really what you could say is this. When he calls you to this idea of hating even your own self, you cannot be my disciple. You could say this. If you're, if you're ready, here's the point. Are you ready for this? Point number one, the only point. Ready? A genuine disciple of Jesus is a person who loves Christ supremely. Any other love is like hatred in comparison. When you think about should you love people, yes. But you love God that much more that anything else in comparison doesn't even match up. That's how much you love God. You love him supremely. What is he saying to that crowd? As lost people forsake all idols of the human relationships for the one true God. You forsake it all. You love the Messiah supremely. And if you're, if you're unwilling to do this, I am so sorry. You cannot be my follower. That is so shocking. But you know what's interesting is this. Years ago, people came into a Hindu culture, missionaries, and they came into that Hindu culture and they began to present the gospel. You need Jesus. <gasps> okay. And they thought many people were being converted. I'm mean, like, wow, look at all of these people getting saved. It's amazing. They're turning to Jesus until they visited him at their house. And they would see all the different idols in their house and then a picture of Jesus. They weren't forsaking any idols. They actually added Jesus to their list of idols. It doesn't work that way. Forsake every idol of human relationship for the one true God. 
love him supremely if you're unwilling to do this. Call yourself a Christian all you want, but you're a phony. Jesus is calling for supreme love, and he deserves every bit of it. Now, here's my question to you. Are you ready for this? Do you love Christ supremely? Now, get honest with yourself, do you? Because some of you go, oh, yeah, Jeremy, I, I love Jesus. Like, seriously, like, you know, me and Jesus are kind of like, you know, we're quite close. You know, I love him. Oh, really? That's interesting. Do you, do you really always think about him? Because when, if you loved him supremely, it would be like you would want to not only think about him, you'd talk about him all the time. I mean, in your conversations with people, is it just normal that you talk about Jesus? I mean, do you think about, do you, do you talk to him all the time? Do you always, are you praying all the, I mean, are you like praying without ceasing? Do you walk with Jesus? Do you really, do you read the Bible consistently because you want to know him better and you, you want to walk? I mean, that, if you love somebody, don't you want to hang out with them? Don't you, I mean, you can't get, a, it's almost you can't get enough of the person because you love, you love him so much. We say we love God. We say we love Jesus. Do we? Do we love him supremely? Is there anything that comes close in this relationship? And yet here's, what's, here's the point. Not only is he calling this to, to lost people, but there are Christians in the crowd hearing this message. Because I think some of you are saying, well, Jeremy, back in the day, there's a time in my life where I did repent. I did turn from my sin to Jesus as my supreme love. Now the question is, do you love him supremely even today? Because what I find is this, this thing right here, as I'm pointing to my heart, I'm saying this. It is an idol-making factory the moment you think you remove an idol is the moment another one pops up we're so quick to idolatry and yet we should remove all idols for the one true god when i think about this i think of peter who peter said jesus you know i love you everyone else may forsake you but not me i'll die for you uh peter that's not true actually before the rooster crows you're going to deny me three times. What? Yeah. And then it happens. Remember, it's like everything, their world is turned upside down. Jesus is going to the cross. There's the sword, and Peter tries to kill a guy and put away the sword, and Jesus heals an open flesh wound. I mean, all this stuff happens so quickly. Peter is not sure what to do. They're all fleeing in some way. But then Peter and John, they go to where the high priest's house is, and remember, Jesus is being accused, and different things are going on, and they're kind of at a distance, and Peter's out in this courtyard, and sure enough, what happens? This little slave girl, you're one of him, aren't you? You're a follower of Jesus aren't you? No, I'm not. No, no, no. He is a Galilean. I can, no, I am not. I mean, it's like he curses, like everything about it. It's like he, in his third time in rejection, remember at the third time, right when he says it, Luke tells us he, he, he looks up and he sees they were moving Jesus at that point in time from one place to another. And he, as he says, I do not even know the man. He looks up and his eyes meet Jesus at the moment he's denying him. I don't even know him. And now his heart's broken. He leaves, and because he hears the, the rooster crow, he realizes exactly what Jesus said would happen, happen to him. He's walking away. I, I, he's so shamed. He's so, he's so, he's, he's weeping bitterly. It's like, you know, can I ever be used of God ever? I mean, I say I love him, and I denied him, and to the point of even after the resurrection, he's struggling with that. I mean, the, the point is, even to the point I'm supposed to go meet him again, then he gets, well, I'm going fishing. Anyone with me? I mean, it's like, at this point, their loads of loads, their world's been upside down. They, they, ah, oh, you know, what? 
what does this all mean even? They don't understand all of this yet. I'm going fishing. I mean, that's what he used to do. He's professional, you know? I'm like, yeah, let's just go fishing. That's what made us happy in the past. And they fish all night. And they catch nothing. Talk about a loser of losers. You know what I mean? I mean, you're the lowest of lows now. And then they hear from the shoreline, cast your net on the other side. He's heard that before. They do. And the Bible says they catch 153 fish. How do, how do we know? Because they're counting them as they're coming. And they're putting them, and they're, the boat. I mean, it's amazing as they catch all these fish within the nets. And they're, it's unbelievable. And Peter, right away, he, he dives in the water. He just swims to Jesus. He, Jesus at the shore. He knows who this is. This is the risen Christ. He's, and this food is made breakfast. I, you, how did he make it? I don't, he probably maybe spoke it into existence. Maybe he just said breakfast. You know, and it came or whatever. But uh, he's there and he sees the breakfast. And sure enough, they begin to eat with Jesus. He's the risen Christ. He's alive. And three different times Jesus says, do you love me? If you know even the nuances of the Greek word there, it's a little interesting why he would change it within that phrasing. Peter says, you know I'm fond of you. That's Peter's word for love. It's a friendship love. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me more than these? Feed my sheep. You You know I'm fond of you. Jesus, I friendship love you. Jesus says the third time, Peter, do you friendship love me? And Peter's broken. He doesn't seem to know what to say. You know that I love you. Amazing, God restores Peter. What is God doing? God is always at work in a believer's heart to bring us to greater love for him. And the truth is you say, well, Jeremy, if I forsake all idols and I love him supremely, I mean, that, that's going to ruin my marriage. Well, it might. Actually, it could because it could be you're married to a lost person and they go, eh, I don't want any of that and get out of here. But, but the truth is if you have two people within a marriage that both love Christ supremely, can I tell you, it's going to be the most unbelievable marriage ever because there's going to be the love of God that's just so right there and, and apparent. If you've got a whole family and everybody in that family is loving Christ supremely, it's going to change the way you interact with everybody. If you want to understand real love, then love Christ supremely. Supremely, because when you truly get saved, what happens? The love of God is it then resides in your heart. Now, all of a sudden, you become a part of the family of God, which God is love. Apart from God's love, you would never know what real love is. And that means this. If you're here today with a, as a lost person, there is no way possible you can truly love people in the way that you should. Apart from God. Forsake all idols of human relationships. And love Christ supremely. Do you love Christ supremely? Will this change our world? Yes. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, as we consider this passage of Scripture, as we work into this even further, I think of even tonight dealing with the subject of the cross specifically. God, I pray you would stir our cold hearts. Lord, we sometimes say with our lips, we love you. But then with our life, it just doesn't match up. So God, I would pray now that you would stir within us 
a, a true desire that we would be willing to forsake any idols in our hearts for you, the one true God. I pray that in this room, if there's anybody who is here who has never been truly born from God, that they would today repent and turn to the Messiah and him alone, that the love of God could then be shed abroad in their heart. So God, apart from real repentance and faith, they can never experience it. So God, bring lost people to yourself and bring saved people to a closer walk with you, God. I know positionally we're there, but practically we're not. So God, draw us closer, just like you did with Peter. And God, as you work in our hearts, I pray that we would leave here with greater love for you than we did when we came in.